welcome to the Thousand Voices podcast. My name is Mujan Asgari, founder and CEO of Thousand Eyes on Me, and I'm your host for this podcast series. Each week, you will hear stories of fearless leaders and entrepreneurs to get inspired and learn how to become a successful leader. The following episode is made in collaboration with Women in AI as part of a series of interviews for Women in AI Awards Australia and New Zealand 2022. Before talking about our guest's incredible story, I would like to make an announcement. At Thousand Eyes and Me, we are supporting a new initiative called Thousand Faces to go even further in our mission to support women. Thousand Faces is an exclusive investment club using carbon-negative art NFTs to finance female-led projects. We are combining art, technology, diversity, and the environment. You can join our club at www.thousandfaces.art and follow us on our social media to learn more about our investment areas and exciting news. So our guest today is a very special person and I'm very excited about our show today. I'm extremely delighted to have Dr. Ramona Vijayarasa joining me. Ramona is a lecturer, author, and human rights activist. She's the chief investigator behind the Gender Legislative Index. She's also a senior lecturer in the Faculty of Law and the Juris Doctor Program Head at the University of Technology, Sydney. Her international human rights activism has included advancing anti-trafficking victim reintegration networks in Vietnam and Ukraine, filing briefs before the European Court of Human Rights, the Supreme Court of Moldova, and the Supreme Court of the Philippines, and managing multi-country programs to advance women's reproductive rights and freedom from violence. Ramona was a 2020 Women's Leadership Institute Australia Research Fellow. She was the winner of the Women in AI Law Awards and the second runner-up for the Innovator of the Year for the Women in AI Awards 2022 Australia and New Zealand. She's the author of two books of Sex, Slavery and the Trafficked Women and The Woman President, which was just published last month. Ramona, welcome to our show. I'm so excited to have you here. Mujan, thank you so much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> thank you. How are you doing today? I'm well. I'm doing well. So I'm joining you from Sydney. It's late in the afternoon and winter here, but it's been a really um, sunny, nice day. Okay, wonderful. So I have a tons of questions from you and there's so much for us to talk about. But before all, I have a big question. So you studied law, philosophy, you've been involved in so many legal activism, working with various organizations on law reforms, support human rights, immigrants, counter uh, efforts about counter trafficking. And uh, you work, you know, for sexual health in Africa and Southeast Asia. You worked against violence against women. So all of this, that are so important and tremendous. Looking at your profile, it shows you really are a fighter, a true activist. My question is that, how did you become this? How, how did you become this person who's really advocating for these? What happened earlier in your life that brought you to your place today? 
Oh, that's that's such an important question, and I think it's one that I'm rarely asked about. You know, I I feel very privileged to have had that journey. When you tell, when you list the things that I've managed to do in my life, I feel grateful for the people that have given me their time to enable me to have the knowledge to be able to fight for an improvement in human rights all around the world. You know, I was born and raised in Sydney to migrant parents. My parents migrated to Australia from Malaysia in the 1970s. And I always wanted to be a lawyer. It was something I wanted to do from a very early age. But I think I also had instilled in me by my parents this need to be conscious of those around us with less. You know, as as a family of migrants growing up in Australia, you suffer racial discrimination all the time. This was in the, my parents migrated in 1975 and I was born in the early 1980s and it was it was constant. And so that was one battle that I faced. So I saw discrimination, racial discrimination in particular, front on. At the same time, my parents made this effort to enable us to travel around the world as much as we could. And so I had a very privileged upbringing. They worked hard to make sure I was well-educated and I was never wanting anything. But one of my memories from a lot of these trips, we went to beautiful countries all around the world. We traveled to India and New Zealand and Hong Kong to the United States. I always remember my parents being very conscious of the poorer people around us. And it wasn't simply a matter of, donating money or, or to people busking, we would have conversations around poorer people around us. When we went to India, we talked about the slum dwellers and the poverty and how unacceptable that was. If we ever had people helping us, to my parents, it wasn't a question of we're paying someone to drive us from place A to place B. They would have conversations with these people and ask them about their lives and, and what they were experiencing, if they had children, where they grew up there was never a sense of being better than anyone else. And I really love that. And I suppose it means a lot more to me now than it ever did before because I have young children of my own and I want them to be conscious of the people around us with less and not to reinforce or create hierarchies that I don't think should exist. So I think that was something that really made me very conscious of how important it would be to pursue a career in human rights. I started my career in corporate law and you know in a and I suppose in a without drawing on stereotypes in quite a migrant fashion my parents wanted me to stay in corporate law and earn good money and have a secure career and they were concerned when I said to them I don't want to continue my life in corporate law I, I want to leave private practice to pursue a career in human rights which is what I'd always wanted to do in fact when I left university, one of my first jobs straight out of university was an internship at the Coalition Against Trafficking in Women in Manila, and I went to Manila for a few months. But when I when I really turned my back on private practice, I think my parents were in equal measure proud, but also worried that I wouldn't have a sustainable career. And it's funny because I always look back and, and I thank them for the reason I did that. They instilled in me this value to pursue a career in human rights even if they were the ones who were worried when I decided to do it. <laughs> yeah, P- parents are always, you know, worried for for that. And that's that's their role also to really help us to make the right decisions. And uh, I can definitely resonate with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so were, were there any situations that you were scared 
Um, I mean, I assume that you were very young when you went, for example, to Manila and, and then for the rest of the experiences you had, were there any situations you were like, oh, maybe I, I shouldn't do what I'm doing or maybe it's not right for me or like really scared for the situations you were seeing? I, I think it was, was interesting about all the places I've managed to travel with. I felt the safety of having other women around me. So in my career, I've managed to really travel from one end of the world to the other. And in all of those countries, I've really spent the time working with remarkable women. So a lot of the organizations I've worked with have had a really grounded approach to how we identify and shape this demand for change. So it's about listening to people's stories, listening to people's lived experiences and ensuring that that's reflected when you advocate to a government or a community head to change the context in which those women are living with. So I was always very welcomed into these countries by fellow women and there is a beauty in that and there's a safety in that. So I joined a candlelight vigil because I was asked to with women in Brazil who really lived across the slums of Rio de Janeiro and we walked through the streets at night time and I don't ever remember feeling unsafe because I was surrounded by empowered, powerful, incredible women in this moment of solidarity. So in my working life, I think I felt very safe and protected. Probably as an adult, I've been able to look back at situations that happened to me when I was younger and think that was wrong, but I probably couldn't have articulated at the time. I remember one of my first trips to India, I later returned to India after traveling there for with my family, I later returned for work. But I remember the first trip that I had been in a marketplace and I remember being touched in this crowded marketplace and at the time couldn't put that into words or articulate that that was wrong and shouldn't have happened to me. But it was only as an adult that I remember thinking, yeah, these men are touching me because they can. We're in a public place and they're exploiting that opportunity that we're in such a crowded space to touch my body. And I was left physically unharmed. But I do remember looking back later as an adult woman able to process that and the wrong of that. And, you know, I imagine many young women find themselves in experiences where they're not physically harmed and maybe not even that emotionally scarred at the time, but where their rights are violated and yet they don't necessarily have the language or the capacity to process that. So I felt very safe in my work as an adult, but definitely there are moments looking back, you know, travel over overseas, for example, the one I mentioned where I would have thought, yeah, that, that was wrong and that, that happened to me and, and it would happen to other women too. Yes, it's very difficult most of the time for people or the victims, I would call them, under situations that they might have their rights uh, violated. It's very difficult sometimes to react. Um, I mean, myself had been through some experiences that I didn't realize what happened at the time or I was not in capacity of reacting to that situation. And, and I know so many women who had really hard times with dealing with like physical sexual harassment. And, and you know, those are the times that you, you process it later at life. If you actually are lucky to be able to process it well, it, it comes like, you know, back to you and you, you, you have some really interesting realizations that, oh, okay, I, that, now I understand what happened. But sometimes it can take time. And, and you're right, it is a real privilege to have the moment and the time to process it. Look, I've spoken with women who've had their rights violated across a whole spectrum of areas, of issues, and to varying degrees. And I think some of the biggest challenges 
is that where we live in societies where women's rights are regularly violated and women are treated as secondary citizens all the time, some of those rights violations become so normalised that women are often left to wonder, Did was that wrong? What happened to me? Was that a rights violation? Because you just come to expect it so much. And I think that's why it's so important to be educating women about their rights and the obligations of the people around them so that they can identify in their own experiences what was wrong and, and to call it out and to support them if they do choose to call it out because that's not always easy to do either. Yeah, that's true. So, so if you look at history, the human being history, we have a history of um, dominating um, over women, basically having more of a, let's say, masculine leadership and domination of them, the male gender over women for thousands and thousands of years. Why do you think we have this gender issue? Why, why do you think it exists and still it exists, even though there's consciousness about it? Oh, that's a, I mean, that's a really big question. But I suppose looking at my own work, especially the work I've done on women in politics and political leadership, I met a wonderful Muslim woman activist in Sri Lanka. And she's been an activist for many, many years. She's in her late 80s. And she said to me, the air at the top is lovely and there is indeed a reluctance to share it and I think it's really nicely encapsulates that people want to rise to the top and it comes down to a question of power and there's a reluctance to relinquish that and because we've lived in a society where men have dominated the top in effect what we're asking when it comes to greater equality for women is for men to give up some of that power. The power pie doesn't get bigger. It's about redistributing that power, not just to women, but to other minorities, whether that's on the basis of linguistic minorities or sexual minorities or gender minorities or racial minorities. And so I think there's a reluctance to share out the power. We are a a world in which people are power hungry. And in this world, for centuries, men have held the majority of the power and there's a reluctance to share it. And I suppose the answer that I'm seeing more and more is about articulating how all of society is better off with a more equal sharing. And I think that can be really frustrating because when we're talking about the kind of areas I work in, women have a right to be represented. Women have a right to stand for politics. Women have a right to be voted. Women have a right to equality at the workplace and and to rise to be leaders in workplaces. And and that should be the end of the conversation. But unfortunately, it's not. And so if we need to persuade the power holders, I think we need to articulate a better narrative around why it's beneficial for everyone if there's better sharing of that power. Hmm. I see. You you are the chief investigator behind the Gender Legislative Index. Can you tell us what is this index and what are some of the interesting findings that you have noticed? Sure. So, you know, I had, as I mentioned before, this really privileged journey working in civil society at NGOs for a long time before I returned to academia. And one of the reasons that brought me back to academia and to the University of Technology in Sydney was this sense that we, we could do more with law if we knew how. And so a lot of the stories women had told me were stories where the law was ineffectual, but I'm not sure we were necessarily at a point where we knew what laws would necessarily be good for women and make women's lives better. And so I started my research analysing law from a women's rights perspective and I was able to start to identify what made laws good for women or what made laws bad for women. 
But I realised that if I wanted to do something on a much larger scale, I needed better tools and those tools went around me. And so that led me to create the Gender Legislative Index, which was built through a collaboration between myself, a data analyst at the UTS Connected Intelligence Centre, and with software engineers at the UTS Faculty of Engineering and IT, which is a team of engineers who do pro bono projects called Rapido Social. And so in this collaboration, we managed to create the Gender Legislative Index, which is an interface that allows you to measure domestic laws and to analyse the provisions of domestic laws against international benchmarks. And it's, it's powered by a mix of human evaluation and machine learning. But at the end of the day, you can compare laws across various subject matter, across various countries, and you can say this law is a good law for women and this is what makes it good and this law is a bad law for women and this is what's making it bad. So, for example, a law to combat gender-based violence will be stronger if it allows women to exit a relationship or a divorce without forcing them to go into some sort of conciliation process. That is, in fact, a violation of international standards. If it guarantees those women accesses to the services they need, like legal services or housing, and it gives them a remedy for the violence that they've suffered. A poor law on gender-based violence wouldn't guarantee those women any confidentiality and it may even not protect women's rights if they have a protection order against a former spouse against whom they're trying to hide and not disclose their new address. So there's examples in the Gender Legislative Index of really good laws and really bad ones and we can compare which countries are performing better and how other countries can learn. And the Gender Legislative Index at the moment has laws from a really diverse set of legislation, so gender-based violence, women's reproductive health, financial services regulation, taxation, mining. And, and part of the reason why there's such diversity is I think it's really important to bring this gender perspective, not just to areas of legislation we know well, like violence against women or women's access to abortion, but also to areas of law where we tend not to understand how women experience the law differently and how to make that law work better for women, such as in the field of taxation. That's a much more complicated conversation. So, you know, I'm really excited about the Gender Legislative Index. I think it's a really powerful tool and it has the potential to offer countries across the world global good practice if they want to use the law more effectively to advance women's rights. Mm -hmm. who, who can use this index? So I suppose there's multiple users. One are the activists on the ground. So, for example, if there's laws that have been evaluated, for example, the Indonesian law on the elimination of violence in the household or the Australian law on workplace gender equality, activists in those countries can use the tool to say, look, this law has not performed that it's meeting international standards, only partially there, and to use the data to make a case for law reform. The other users are legislators themselves. So I believe in working really closely with people in parliament, in my case in particular, women legislators, to show them how they can put forward bills, draft legislation that actually meets some of the criteria from international law so that when a bill is tabled before parliament, it's already drafted in a way that's going to make women's lives better because it's been assessed against the criteria in the Gender Legislative Index. And I suppose, you know, if I do manage to reach my goal of a global database of good practice laws, 
some of the end users might be large-scale organisations, so foundations like Rockefeller or Hewitt-Packard or agencies like the World Bank who can start identifying which countries are performing very well when it comes to certain areas of legislation and which ones are not doing as well and can be assisted with law reform. And it isn't always the wealthy countries that do really well. So we know countries like Nordic, the Nordic countries like Norway and Sweden and Denmark have very strong laws to encourage shared caring through paid parental leave. But I've also seen that countries like the Philippines have really strong laws on gender-based violence and equality at work. So it's also about opening up people's minds about which countries are the ones that are enacting really good legislation. Hmm, That's very interesting. And uh, I have a question. So how do you make the baseline of the index? Basically, we say uh, if you're comparing different countries and their laws to the index, who is building that index. You, you said you mentioned actually getting help from the AI, but my question is mostly how do we know the baseline is actually the, the good one, the correct one that we are now assessing every other country's laws to that? Such a good, good question. So there's two answers to that question. The first one is the criteria. So the Gender Legislative Index uses seven criteria to evaluate a law. And those criteria are actually asked twice So they're considered in terms of the actual intention of the law, so what's its textual intention, and then secondly, again, for its likely effect on people's lives. And those seven criteria are derived from the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. So this is an international human rights treaty. It's been around for four decades. It's the only United Nations human rights treaty dedicated to discrimination against women. And almost every country in the world minus around five countries, have signed up for it. And so one of the reasons why I've used CEDAW as the benchmark is because I'm not telling countries they need to do anything other than what they've already said they would do. Because when countries signed up to this treaty many years ago in some cases, they committed to enacting legislation that would remove discrimination confronting women. And so I think it's really important to remind countries that when the laws are being evaluated in the Gender Legislative Index, it's already what the countries have agreed to do. It's just that they're not delivering on this gender-responsive legislation. The second part of that answer is that when the human evaluators assess the law against the seven criteria, they need benchmarks because obviously what is a a gender-responsive law in the area of reproductive health where it might be about access to healthcare services and non-discriminatory treatment in the hospital will be very different from financial services, where it might be about mobile banking to reach women in rural and remote communities or having um, lower standards for collateral for women who are sole heads of households so that they can borrow loans without huge interest payments. And so evaluators apply benchmarks that have also been derived not only from that convention but other international human rights treaties or regional agreements. So again, it's using standards that the countries have already committed to in international policy negotiations. Now, I would love in some respects the standards to be higher. I would love to use the best case example of a piece of legislation and say, well, let's evaluate countries against this good practice law. There's so many problems with that. That's subjective about who decides it's good practice. It's it's not a fair treatment if you're talking about 
comparison across different geographic, political and economic environments. So every country is evaluated in the Gender Legislative Index against the same set of standards, all of which are derived from international women's rights law and from commitments these countries have already made. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's that's pretty actually inspiring and interesting to see how how much we have there to use and you know, that's, we, we can really do a lot of things with already what we have at hand. So that's really, really fascinating what you, what you've built and um, achieved here working with, you know, uh, decision makers also. It's, it's a very, very important and I, I believe like very hard task to do. I would like to actually talk about what has recently happened in June with the U.S. Supreme Court uh, overturning the law for abortion uh, that was already passed in 1973 and basically it is now removed from the law and it leaves it to the states, to each state to rule on it. And and that has resulted in some tightening from the states to give the right for abortion for women. First of all, I want to know what's your own feeling about this and then if there's anything that it binds the United States with the treaty that you mentioned that they have signed and if there's anything that uh, it can be done. All, both very good questions. So I started my career early on working for the Centre for Reproductive Rights in New York, which is a truly incredible organisation that does domestic and international advocacy for the rights of women and to really push for law reform when it comes to abortion. And so this issue is really close to my heart. And I think like women all around the world, we were just devastated when the Supreme Court, when the the decision was leaked that the Supreme Court was going to overturn Roe v. Wade. It wasn't that surprising when they finally did because we'd had the leaked decision. And as you say, now it leaves it in the hands of states to decide whether they will allow women to access an abortion. And across the US, you have many progressive states that have stood up to strengthen their laws on rights to abortion and said that they will accept women traveling into the state to undertake an abortion within those progressive states. But what that means is for all the states that are trying to encroach and restrict women's access to an abortion is that it's particularly affecting a very specific demographic of women, really lower women of lower socioeconomic income. And so imagine trying to access an abortion service if you're working a casual job or doing shift work and you need to go get leave to go to visit the doctor or in some cases two doctors to get to meet the requirements that your state has put in place to access an abortion. So what people don't realise is because it's up to the states, the states may allow for an abortion, but with the most difficult and onerous restrictions possible. So sometimes women will need three medical certificates or even two medical certificates from different doctors permitting them to have an abortion, but they'll need to get them one week apart. And for a woman who then has to, t- to leave shift work or gets tr- has trouble getting leave or has a tight household budget to then be able to commute around the city to go to visit these different doctors, getting those certifications is incredibly difficult. You know, and so something that may sound simple to some women in some contexts places a very high economic burden on those women seeking to enjoy their right to choose. When these states decide to reduce the number of weeks up until which a woman can access abortion, it also has a particular impact, again, on a certain demographic of women, often younger women, who might take longer to, to identify that they're pregnant. Imagine a teenager who's pregnant and then takes a long time to tell her parents that she's pregnant, by which stage she may have surpassed the number of weeks where an abortion is permitted in her state. So these encroachments, requirements, 
such as certifications from multiple doctors or requiring um, restriction in the number of weeks or requiring women to undergo quite um, emotionally draining counselling where they need to see photos of the fetus before they undertake an abortion. All of these place a huge economic and emotional burden on women and it's really devastating. And I think what's particularly concerning with this decision is for a long time the US has been very influential in shaping reproductive rights all around the world. So for a long time as a donor nation, the United States would often, it had the um, Mexican city policy where it wouldn't allow recipients of the funds from US donors, such as, for example, Bangladesh or Kenya or the Philippines, countries in the global south, to provide advice to women visiting clinics on access to abortion. Many of these countries still look to the US for practice. Many will look to the Supreme Court decision in shaping their their legislation and in shaping court decisions. They might even refer to Roe v. Wade. So while other countries, Australia is not likely to do that in an Australian court, well, some countries in the global south will. So it's not only women in the US who feel the implications of this decision. Globally, women will feel it all around the world. And I think it's just an incredibly sad backward step for women's reproductive rights. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I can I can definitely understand and feel that. And honestly, as, as an Iranian woman who's been, you know, <laughs> facing a lot of difficulties as a as a woman for my own freedom, it's I for me was like really depressing this news. But I'm more interested in like what could we do as women, like as communities, global communities to support it and or this is there any advancement in the index in any parts that can give us some hopes or any actions that you suggest us like us women or either either men like who are listening to this podcast they can they can do to to support this uh, initiatives and hopefully change the law again. Well, you asked an incredibly important question earlier, which is, can the US be held to the standards in the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women? 97% of the world's countries have ratified CEDAW, but the countries that remain are, given you said you're of Iranian background, Iran, Somalia, Sudan, and the United States. So very sadly, the United States hasn't signed up to CEDAW. It's a real shock because it is one of the world's only, well, it is the world's only global north claim to be superpower that has never signed up to CEDAW. So President Joe Biden has committed under a new gender equality policy that has been enacted in his time, has been developed in his time to for the United States to sign up to CEDAW, which will be a remarkable, remarkable forward step. Now, I don't want to overstate the power of the United Nations treaty bodies to bring about change. And it's a slow process. Often they're overburdened committee members and progress is slow. But I will say this, you know, having worked for many years in and out of the Philippines, the CEDAW committee, the committee that oversees the implementation of this treaty, has constantly advise the government of the Philippines that it needs to improve. Government of the Philippines has had very local bans, even issued by mayors, on women accessing contraception. Can you imagine being told that you live in Manila City and contraception is now banned? Wow. You know, it's, it's, it doesn't allow access to abortion. And for many 
years, people understood that if they came across someone who'd had an access, had access an abortion, they would have to report them to the police. Oh, my God. But the CEDAW committee has constantly reported back to the Philippines, you need to change this policy, you need to improve. And I've seen improvements until just actually, uh, oddly enough, under the former President Duterte, they passed a reproductive health law, which made it clear that if a health provider comes across someone who's had an abortion, they don't need to report them to the police. So I suppose to sum it up, the CEDAW committee does have influence and has helped bring about change. So I think getting these four remaining countries, Iran, Somalia, Sudan and the United Nations, the United States to sign the United Nations Treaty would be really significant. Not everything, but a step forward. <laughs> It's a, I mean, why I'm laughing is that maybe this is one of the rare circumstances that Iran and the United States are in the same boat. <laughs> I know, a very, very rare one. It's, it's something... Very dark one, but... <laughs> yeah, few people would know. What's also interesting, though, is what I saw when I was living in the US, in New York, and, and working at the Center for Reproductive Rights, was how effectively they used other United Nations treaties, such as the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination, to raise issues of discrimination that women had experienced because obviously we know women have multiple identities and some of the hardest impacted women will be women of colour. And so they found other avenues, including other UN conventions, to raise some of the issues to call for improvements in the protection of the rights of women. So advocates can get strategic when we need to be, I suppose. Hmm. <laughs> I want to talk about your book, The Woman President. I haven't had the time to read that, but I'm very, very excited to to receive it. I actually just uh, was looking for the online, you know, online on Amazon. I don't know if it exists, but if, if it exists, please share with me the links. I will put it in the footnotes of the episode. But tell tell me a little bit about what you're talking about in this in this book. I can imagine what it is about is basically from the title, but can you tell us a little bit more about what are the arguments, what are the key points that you're mentioning in the book? Sure, I would love to. I'm really excited about my new book. As you mentioned, <laughs> And congratulations, by the thank way. Thank you, thank <laughs> you. It's, you know, it's been a wonderful experience writing this book because, you know, I wrote it as an academic study, but it's been a really nice platform to have a conversation with people in the public about women leaders and the difference women leaders make on women's lives. So the study is really a, a look at do women lead differently and will, will fellow women's lives be better when a woman is president? And it particularly focuses on the legislation. What legislation is enacted when women presidents have been in power and how does that legislation perform under the gender, the gender legislative index? So it goes back to the index that I discussed before. So it is a study of four women presidents from three countries in South and Southeast Asia, Philippines's Corazon Aquino and then Gloria Macapagal Arroyo, Indonesia's first and only female president, President Megawati, and Sri Lanka's fifth president, President Chandrika Bandaranaike Komaratunga. So I had this really wonderful journey traveling to all three countries. I got to interview former cabinet members, members of parliament, women activists, scholars from the region. And then I coupled that with an analysis of the legislation that was enacted when these four women were in power. And if I was really pushed to find, you know, three findings, do women leaders make women's lives better? I would say yes, and in three ways. One, there's a really clear role model effect. You know, these women were sometimes the first ever female president in their countries and really helped shift this idea that politics is a space for men. And women 
spoke to me very passionately about how significant it was having had a female leader in their country and and that calling someone Madam President or people having to say Mrs or she in the news wasn't just a question of a pronoun. It was, it was really significant. And I, I think, you know, when you look at a country like Sri Lanka now, which, you know, I'm sure listeners have followed, that an all-male government under Rajapaksa had basically fled the country with the people's money. It's an extreme case of economic mismanagement, really corruption, only for another male leader to step up in his place. I think if you compare that today to when Chandrika Bandaranaike was president and her mother, who was actually the first ever elected head of government when she became prime minister in Sri Lanka in 1960, her mother was prime minister when she was president. You've got this mother-daughter duo on stage and that leaves an image in the minds of younger women that, that women can be world leaders. I think it's a really important finding in the book. The second major way in which I think women leaders make women's lives better is I saw these women pulling women up the ladder. They would appoint, as presidents, they would appoint other women to their cabinets and sometimes to really significant roles. So if we stick with the Sri Lanka example, Chandrika Bandaranaike appointed this wonderful woman MP, Ferial Ashraf, who was actually the first Muslim woman in Sri Lankan parliament. And she appointed her to the Minister for Construction and Housing, which became really significant when the tsunami hit Sri Lanka because she was then able to lead the tsunami recovery effort to make sure that there was funds for widows, that women were represented in tsunami response committees at all levels of management. And so I think there's a really important role women leaders play in pulling other women up the political ladder. And then I saw the third major finding from the book, which is really one of the key findings, is about the influence these women presidents had on laws that were good for women. So when these women were in power, I saw other women's groups mobilise more resources and directly lobby the president and use the women's vote in exchange for getting bills passed. So all three countries enacted laws to combat gender-based violence between 2004 and 2005 when these women were presidents. Under Philippines' Corazon Aquino, in 1992, the Philippines introduced maternity leave. You know, 2004, under President Gloria Macapagal Arroyo, the Philippines introduced what I've seen as one of the world's best laws to combat gender-based violence that included 10 days of paid leave for survivors of violence. And there were a whole host of other examples, laws that introduced gender equality quotas in parliament in Indonesia or that combated violence against teachers and student, female students in educational institutions in Sri Lanka, really notable law reform that advanced women's lives and all of which happened when women were in, in presidential positions. So I think there's this really significant connection between women being in leadership roles at the presidential level and better laws for women. Wow, it's just giving me goosebumps when I'm like listening to you telling me all these things. And, and you know, it's just such a different stuff, mindset and it, the things that, you know, a, a woman would think and, and the position of power compared to when the, 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 that, you know, uh, female voice is inexistent. It's just such a difference. And you see that 
in such small details, translating in all the structures and the different activities. I think this is this is fascinating. What are all the things we can do, and and what is all the things that we're missing out actually by not using them, by not using their their mind, their talents. So, <laughs> um, yeah. And and you know, I think it's a story version that's not often told because there are so few women who make it to this position of president or prime minister. So, by my count, right now in the world, there are only thirty women presidents or prime ministers. And so, if you think the world has more or less two hundred or so countries, and some of those countries have both the position of president and prime minister, we only have thirty women occupying out of approximately two hundred and thirty roles. So, so few. So we are missing out on women's talents and fellow women are missing out on seeing women in leadership roles and being brought into the political decision-making space because those women aren't making it to their country's top jobs. Hmm. So I want to ask you the hard question. What do you think that we could do to change this? What do you think we can do today to increase female leadership across countries, across very high-level decision-making roles? Well, look, I think there's this really interesting shift that I've seen in recent years that there are some countries that have very young women leaders. So the Finland Sanna Marin is the world's youngest female leader. She became Prime Minister of Finland at age 34. And Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern of New Zealand, who's New Zealand's third Prime Minister, became Prime Minister just at the age of 39. But that's not the norm. Most people enter executive leadership much later in their careers. So we'll only see women rise to the positions of president and prime minister if they're supported through the political system. So I suppose one of the first things we need to do is get more women in politics. And in many country contexts, that means making politics a more appealing workplace for those women. So, for example, here in Australia, we've seen a rise in the number of women in federal parliament, which is fantastic, but parliament still remains quite an unfriendly workplace for women. There's sexual harassment that goes unaccounted for. It's very difficult to balance the commitments as a parliamentarian with one's family life. There's not the flexibility we need. And so we need to see more women get into politics. We need more women to survive and thrive in that environment to encourage other women to step up to want to run. And I think that will slowly mean we see more women enter the pipeline and hopefully not drop out of the pipeline to rise to executive leadership. And I think these these leadership lessons, how do we get make leadership more attractive for women? How do we support women up the leadership ladder? How do we build solidarity among women is relevant to getting women lead in all sorts of different spaces, in the corporate world, in media, in academia, in politics, because we do want to see more women in those leadership roles. And I think the leadership lessons are really quite parallel across all those different spaces. Mm-hmm. That's a beautiful closing to our conversation. <laughs> so I want to thank you so much, Ramona, for all this inspiring discussion, talks, ideas that you shared. Um, I myself, I, I learned so much from you. So thank you so much for joining me today for the show. Thank you, Mirjan. It was really wonderful talking with you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. This was Dr. Ramona Vijayarasa from Australia. Thousand Voices is a production of Thousand Eyes on Me. It is hosted by myself, Mujan Askari. Our supervising director is Aruna Patam. Our producer is Raul Kumar. 
Our technical director is Ashish Mittal, and our design director is Nusha Asghari. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Thousand Voices podcast. Join our community to find out more about our guests and our leadership programs on our website www.thousandeyeson.me. Until next time.